DC Comics and Diamond Distribution are finalizing their divorce, and the kids are none too happy. Plus, we discuss nerdy things we usually avoid, and give some nerd commendations. The Nerd Byword starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Now, normally we begin each week with two nerd news stories, but uh, something happened within the past week, and we're only going to have one nerd uh, nerd news story because it's it's quite a whopper. Dave, what are we talking about? Uh, we're talking today about uh, DC Comics leaving Diamond Distribution, uh, which is incredible. Uh, DC Comics announced to retailers on June 5th that they're leaving Diamond, which has basically held uh, a de facto monopoly on the distribution of comic books for the past 25 so or so years. According to The Hollywood Reporter, uh, COVID-19 likely had an impact on this decision, as Diamond decided to halt distribution during the pandemic and then also withheld payments to publishers due to cash flow problems. Uh, moving forward, DC will be using Penguin Random House for their trades and books, while two new companies, Lunar and UCS, will distribute their monthly periodicals. Uh, Lunar is run by a mail-order service discount comic book service, while Youth CS appears to be owned by notable retailer Midtown Comics. Uh, so in the statement that DC sent to retailers, they said, uh, and I quote, DC has been analyzing its direct market distribution for some time, long before COVID, specifically in light of sustained stagnant market growth. The timing of this decision to move on from Diamond was ultimately dictated by the fact that DC's contract with Diamond has expired. But incidentally, the disruption by COVID to the market has required DC to forge ahead with its larger growth strategies that will benefit both the direct market and DC. So, what do you think, Chris, is going to be the immediate impact of this move? Well, I, I read a fantastic article for ComicsBeat.com that was done by Heidi McDonald, and it was kind of like a peek behind the curtain. Um, and some of the industry uh, experts that she spoke to um, said that while they feel that Diamond needed pressure, and it's been a long time coming um, due to the de facto monopoly that you referenced, um, they believe it's the worst timing possible with comic book shops, you know, losing out so much business uh, due to the pandemic and state regulations about, you know, that limit their ability to open and the sales that they can make with curbside and everything. Um, and especially oh, with no new content coming out for, um, you know, a month and a half to two months that really hurt sales as well. Now, um, some other factors that I did notice in that article, um, by Ms. McDonald were that, that there are uh, slightly higher shipping costs with Lunar and UCS at this time. Um, but the, the, the comic shop owners and the retailers who have received um, shipping from these two distributors found that they had better shipping quality, um, something that Diamond uh, Distributing was famously bad for. Um, I've spoken to multiple comic shop, uh, comic shop owners here in our region and you know, and and that seems to they seem to echo the same sentiments there. Um, uh, she had a quote in there from Diamond owner Steve Geppi um, about you know how disappointed he was, and you know is the worst possible timing. Um, if we're being honest, in layman's terms, he kind of sounded like a bitter ex who had got dumped, and you know just wanted to kind of drag in the mud the name of their <laughs> ex. Um, you know. Um, now, graphic novels, one interesting point that I found out, that the graphic novels have been filled by other distributors, particularly Penguin Random House, for quite some time. Uh, that Diamond had not been in charge of that. So that doesn't seem like it's going to be a huge transition um, in this immediate impact. Um, I did see that uh, some really interesting things about Diamond, that they had a 3% reorder penalty that really made it hard. Um, so maybe they'll ease up on that now that they don't have this monopoly anymore. Uh, maybe they'll loosen up that stronghold. And that um, 
this is really a kicker. Diamond had been unwilling to modernize, and they were still um, two to three years ago when they had a job posting, were advertising their use of Windows ninety five, which has been out of date wow. now for about twenty years. Um, so yeah, some it's a really worthwhile article. Again, you can find that at comicsbeat.com. Just really fantastic stuff. So there's some other stuff that I noticed about this too, uh, kind of as a tie-in with the whole COVID thing and now this change of distributors is that DC uh, will be moving to uh, Tuesday as its official release day, which kind of breaks actually with all the other publishers who traditionally release new comic books on Wednesdays. Um, and yeah, uh, these two new companies, although uh, they are basically run by some experienced retailers, are new untested entities when it comes to uh, comic book distribution. Um, so now uh, Diamond has lost 30% of the American comics market. Uh, I want to say that there should be some positive long-term consequences of that. Competition usually breeds innovation. However, in the short term, retailers are going to have a lot of work and they have a lot to figure out working with these new companies basically overnight. Now, Dave, one thing I was wondering, um, is this simply going to be Diamond by a different name? Do you feel like like LCS, own, LCS owners are still kind of going to be handcuffed by the distributing systems, even though that there are two you know, new names entering the market? Do you still feel like it's going to be business as usual? Well, from what I understand, the terms that Lunar and UCS will be uh, using seem to be basically the same as Diamond, uh, right down to, you know, limited returnability except for certain issues and the like. So the systemic problems in the industry are not addressed by that, at least in the short term. Uh, but again, I'm hoping, uh, now that there's multiple options, that maybe publishers can exert a little bit of pressure on the distributors and basically say, hey, if you don't give us these terms that will help us grow uh, the market, then we will be able to just go to somebody else after our contract is up. But yeah, in the short term, it seems to me to be pretty much more of the same. Yeah, I think so as well. And I even had that down is returnability is still a or the key issue. You know, we talked about this in our last episode with how to save the comic book industry. When you're you know, I remember going into local comic book shops and seeing like random number 13s and 14s that were just overstocked. Um, and now I know why, because they can't turn it back in, you know, unless it's, you know, like we said, a limited edition or a special number one. So you're just sitting here with a bunch of stuff that, that you have no use for and you can't sell. I totally agree. Uh, I will also say that not a lot of other publishers have really been willing to, to comment to news outlets about this with the exception of Image Comics' Eric Stevenson, uh, who said that those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it, uh, which I believe is probably referring to Marvel's attempts to start their own distributor uh, back in the 90s, I believe. Um, but, you know, Diamond's rules to, to list and distribute comic books are often pretty unrealistic, particularly for small press publishers. I know that Alterna Comics already announced back in April that they're moving to a self-distribution model because they just couldn't hit the benchmarks for pre-orders uh, that Diamond was demanding in order for them to even distribute the books. So that seems uh, to be sort of a policy that doesn't really help uh, smaller, newer publishers grow. Some creators have also weighed in, which I found really interesting. Peter David uh, said... Uh, to a news outlet, and I quote, DC has just announced that they are severing ties with Diamond Comics. DC represents 30% of the market, and, and there is no way, simply no way, Diamond will be able to survive with that kind of come down in revenue. The mission here is to drive Diamond out of business, which will then cripple Marvel Comics. Uh, I'm a huge Peter David fan. Uh, I will say that I don't completely agree with that assessment because marvel being backed by disney they yep. can if diamond uh, starts having financial issues i think marvel will be just, yeah, just fine come to papa disney you know yeah exactly now fabian nicieza also had an interesting take on this uh, he said, I don't pretend to know the details of today's marketplace forces, but as a mutual veteran of the 80s distribution days, philosophically, don't you think having multiple distribution sources for product is ultimately better for the retailers and the industry? And, and I tend to come down more on the side of what he's saying here. Although in the short term, uh, this is going to lead to some growing pains and some problems, and the timing of it is incredibly unfortunate. 
I think there is a long-term potential for this to have a positive impact. Yeah, absolutely. And you even commented this before we hit the record button, is it's simply a matter of their contract was, was up and they were displeased with it. Um, and, you know, DC sat and figured, you know, Jim Lee and, and the rest of DC were like, you know what, we're not happy with what with what you're giving us. So we're going to go another direction. You know, it's similar to any exactly. athlete or, you know, actor or actress that's negotiating a good contract. You know, you're dissatisfied. You go another direction. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I have been surprised by the um, outpouring of negativity among retailers online in particular. Have you noticed anything about that, Chris? Oh, yeah. There's a couple of um, comic shops that I've seen on Instagram and social media that are, are frustrated by the initial growing pains that we've referenced here. Um, not being able to fill pull orders, um, having to really rally around you know, you know, their other, uh, other resources to help fill pulls, and not really having any of the new issues really available um, at time, but I, I really feel like once we get past these initial growing pains, I really just my gut tells me, you know, the AP economy student, you know, in me is is saying that competition is, is going to, as you said, you know, drive innovation and you're going to have to, you know, improve the quality of your service, of your product, if you really want to stay competitive. And, you know, you look at, you know, restaurants during this pandemic and the, the, the way that they've you know bent over backwards and try to you know really fire up their their takeout services and really make it as accessible to customers you look at things like doordash and um you know services like that you know just trying to change and innovation you look at you look at technology in the past 10 years you know it really just blows your mind like i can't think of going without an iphone now you know and 10 years ago I was happy to have a flip phone that had a camera that, you know, I would look at today and just laugh. So uh, hopefully this is, you know, going to drive some some positivity into the future. Yeah, exactly. I will also say, just looking at uh, online over the retailer response, uh, they seem to be concerned about discounts not being as high with uh, the new distributors that they have been getting with Diamond, although DC has released a statement, I believe, earlier today that uh, discounts should be basically the same that they were getting from Diamond. Uh, there's concern that shipping cost is going to be higher. But the one thing that I find the most remarkable as far as you know complaints go is that DCBS and Midtown, who are going to be basically running these new distributors, Lunar and uh, UCS, are retailers. Um, and so they feel like they're now directly competing against um, their distributors because they're also retailers. I think it pays to remember that many of the distributors throughout uh, the history of comic books started out initially as retailers and then later evolved into uh, distributors. So this is not uh, unheard of. So uh, the other concern I noticed was uh, point-of-sale software, which has also been uh, sort of a... Um, Monopoly by Diamond, the software that they use, uh, the retailers use to manage all of their subscriptions and orders and reorders. Uh, and DC has now also stated uh, that uh, UCS is working on compatibility with that point of sale software. So they seem to uh, at least be trying to address some of these concerns that retailers are having. It really just seems like. Um... You know, change change in any time can be tough. I mean, like you, you can you can stratify this out to any aspect of life, and change is scary, um, and especially at a time like now where we've all been cooped up in our houses for three plus months. You know, we haven't had a real a whole lot of experience with the outside world, and um, unless you're an Instagram influencer, you know, out on the beaches of Florida and California, and you throw caution to the wind, but um. You know, um, I think once we get, uh, I, I keep coming back to it, just a gut feeling that, you know, change is hard at first, but, you know, hopefully, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, um, that, you know, positive changes are, are going to come of this. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Ladies and gents, that concludes our nerd news segment for this week, the DC and Diamond divorce. When we come back, we're going to have our byword big talk of the week. The quest less traveled. 
we each came up with three quote-unquote nerdy things that we don't like. All right, we are back with our Byword Big Talk for the week. And as I stated before uh, the break, our topic for this week, we wanted to have three quote-unquote nerdy things that we don't really like. So maybe we're the nerds of the nerd community because we don't ascribe to those things. Dave, what's first on your list? Yeah, this is definitely going to be a hot take situation this episode. Uh, So my first nerdy thing that I don't particularly enjoy uh, is actually online multiplayer games. I understand that they're the wave of the future, but I dislike it for a number of reasons. I have been a lifelong gamer, uh, and I've had a lot of experience with various consoles uh, over the last 30 years. And I grew up primarily with single-player games and couch co-op. And I get very little joy of playing with or against strangers online. I like overcoming obstacles. I enjoy a sense of progression and storytelling in games, which is something that is usually lacking in online multiplayer. Online games are also rife with cheating. I remember years ago trying to play Mario Kart online on the Wii, and there were so many game-breaking events happening every time that I tried to get online. It was simply no fun to play anymore. I certainly prefer games with cooperation over competition, But even among those games, the toxicity of certain players makes even that basically impossible. I went on a binge for a while playing uh, Overwatch, the online hero shooter. And I still really like the game. I like the basic design of it. I enjoy the characters of it. But the toxicity of the player base keeps driving me away. Either players don't communicate, so you can't really cooperate with each other. Or they turn uh, their mic on to unleash a string of racist, sexist, and homophobic comments. And that anonymity really seems to bring out the worst in people. And it's sad that couch co-op is slowly fading away. Uh, Playing with family and friends sitting next to each other, uh, those are some of my fondest gaming memories. At some point, uh, the game becomes secondary then, and the social aspect is the primary motivation. I loved playing Left 4 Dead, for example, a couch co-op with my wife. We never really even touched the online uh, playing modes. Also related to that, I'm just going to say it, games with snipers are boring. Walk out of spawn, get shot immediately by a sniper, respawn, rinse and repeat. Uh, There's very little fun in that. Uh, There's also, I feel, a little bit of uh, laziness in design when it comes to online multiplayer games, because creators are not really um, designing obstacles or progression system or truly interactive experience. They're basically pointing at a playground and telling people to go entertain themselves. Uh, Fallout 76 is a great example of this, a game that was so empty when it launched that it lost most of its uh, player base almost immediately. And they've made a lot of changes to that game since then. Now, that being said, I still play some online multiplayer games. It's just sad that most of the time I end up putting my controller down in disgust at the cheating, the toxicity, and the uninspired design. Chris, what's your take on online multiplayer? Oh, man, I'll say a hallelujah and an amen, uh, because you're preaching to the choir over here. You beat me to the punch. I I was going to put this on my list. And when you suggested this, we we hit stop recording on... um, on last week's episode, you said, you know, I want to do this, and this is the first thing, for example. And I was like, let's just do it. I didn't need to hear any more of your pitch for this episode because online multiplayer gaming and the loathsome attitude that I feel for them, I'm right there. I like to mind my own business. Like, I stay in my lane. I'm an introvert to the max. Um, I don't like leaving my house. So quarantine, some people are freaking out about quarantine. I've been living the dream during quarantine. I can just sit and play my games. I can read my comic books. Like, all of my extroverted family members were like, would you please come see this? And it gives me a great excuse to not have to go to family functions that I really didn't have any interest in going going into anyway. So I could be like, ah, quarantine. So, um, so I do like, I love playing video games, but I like to stay in my own lane. Um, and it's that stranger danger. Like maybe if I had friends who played those games, like um, if I were able to talk you to play Red Dead Online with me, then maybe 
you know, I, I'd be interested in that. But like the one, the one game that I play online, I just, I just turned off the Xbox to come record this episode. I do play Red Dead Online. That's the one game that I play, but that's because I basically create my own story. I far prefer campaign modes and story modes with most stories because I like reading, so I like a story. I never skip the cinematics. I never skip the cutscenes. I want to be told the story, and the thing that I like about Red Dead Online is you create your own story. I'm an existentialist. Life is what you make it to be. So, like, I, you know, create my own business. I have my horse. I take care of my horse. It's very, like, Tamagotchi-like. Like, you just you take care of it and, and, and all of that. Um, so, like, today, for example, I was just trying to go to the butcher to sell some meat. And then all of a sudden I get sniped in the head while I'm standing there at the butcher by some kid named America 2009 I minded my own business, and I just get sniped because some 12-year-old has a bunch of angst towards their parents and wants to unleash on me. So, yeah, it's really problematic, and I echo all the sentiments you said about the toxicity um, and, and the horrible, horrible things. When people, when people get behind, and this happens on social media too, when you have a cartoon character as an avatar and, you know... An, an odd username to where you're not you're not attaching your your legal name to it they feel completely liberated to unleash a bunch of just awful awful bile you know from their screens um i also miss like you said like we had halo parties like my friends when i was in high school we would get together and play halo and we would play until three in the morning and then we'd pass out on the couch like i miss that um, my other favorite ones were like X-Men Legends, X-Men Legends 2. Those really got me back into the X-Men and like, oh man, stoked the flames of the embers left over from the animated series from the 90s. And then they, uh, the next step in that was Marvel Ultimate Alliance. Oh man, that was my game. So th- th- those first two. Uh, I almost bought the Switch just for Ultimate Alliance 3. I haven't yet. Um, I don't know. All these consoles coming out. They they released the trailer for the the Miles Morales game yesterday. So now I'm thinking I need a PS5. I've been a Microsoft guy for so many years, but so I totally echo everything that you said, man. All right, Chris. So what is your uh, first nerdy thing that you do not enjoy? Oh boy, this is gonna upset some people. Here's my hot take of the week. It's official. I don't get the whole villain and anti-hero worship stuff. I appreciate villains for what they are and um, anti-heroes at times for, for what they are as like a plot device and as an antagonist. What I don't understand is why they are worshipped to the degree that they are. So here's my pre-apology for all you Deadpool, Venom, Joker stands. We love you and we embrace you in the nerd community, but I don't get it. Um... I'm really big into um, like personality types, and my Myers-Briggs personality is the INFJ. I'm an introvert. I'm a feeler. And people who have been ascribed with this personality type are, you know, can be characterized as having a Messiah complex. People who, famous INFJs, there's really two different F- ends of the spectrum. I'm going to go super nerd on you. I'm going psychology nerd here. Martin Luther King Jr. was an INFJ. Jesus was ascribed as an INFJ. Then you also have individuals like Adolf Hitler and Osama bin Laden as the same personality type. You can go one way or the other. Um, and I, I just feel like I have this insurmountable moral code, this compass that I cannot deny. I cannot root for a villain. I cannot root for someone who does bad things. All apologies to the Punisher fans. I, I don't get it. Like, there are elements and there are stories where he functions as a part of the process that I appreciate, but I am not going to emblazon his emblem on, you know, like my clothing or whatever. It's not for me. It's not what I want to represent. I just can't root for the bad guys. So apologies again to the Punisher fans, Deadpool, Joker, Venom people. It's just not for me. What do you think? Yeah, I see, I see definitely where you're coming from with that. Um, 
you know, I see a lot of this happening with the Joker in particular on the DC side. There's a big uh, romanticizing of the Harley Quinn-Joker relationship. Although it's been pretty clear from the word go that this is an abusive relationship in both the animated series where Harley was introduced and later in the comics, the constant online memes about how romantic this relationship is has become really unpleasant because it's just it's not romantic it's a it's a toxic relationship that is damaging the participants and this is a great point for me to go ahead and point back to superman again you know this is exactly the appeal of that character he's not an anti-hero he's good decent and moral he's what we should all really aspire to be i for one don't really aspire to be the punisher that doesn't mean i won't read punisher books or watch the netflix show but but let's not fool ourselves. You know, he's not a hero. He's a seriously troubled and damaged individual. It makes for great storytelling, but not for a role model. And not, it's not aspirational in any way, shape, or form. Well, well, Jerry Conway, someone who I hold in high regard, the, the co-creator of The Punisher, said himself, he is not a hero. And you should not worship him as a hero. You should not edify him. He is a criminal. So I'm, I'm going to take it straight from the source, the guy who created him. You know, so... But yeah, and I appreciate like I love I love Venom as a villain, but he is a villain. Like I said this on our first episode, I get, you know, my sense of morals from from Spider-Man Peter Parker. So, I'm not going to then root for like, you know, his greatest nemesis. Like I'm not going to do that. So, but yeah. So that's that's my hot take of the week. That's the first thing that's quote-unquote nerdy that I just can't get behind. Dave, what's second on your list? Yeah, here's another one. Uh, kind of going to dig in on the modern trends in comic book storytelling. Uh, I am not a fan of decompressed storytelling in comic books. Uh, this is uh, a stylistic choice characterized by a strong emphasis on visuals or character interaction, which in turn usually leads to slower moving plots. It is essentially writing for the trade. I need to make sure that my story stretches stretches at least over five or six issues so it can be collected into a trade. This really popped up a lot in the 1990s. There's a certain manga influence there, but it has more content, is printed on cheaper paper, and is on black and white. This goes back in part to what we talked about last week about the bang-for-your-buck ratio in comics. I'm not opposed on principle to longer stories that cover four to six issues. It's just that many of these stories seem artificially stretched, with lots of splash pages and little actually writing on the page. There's nothing wrong with focusing on art as a storytelling tool, uh, rather than being overly verbose. I, I even appreciate the more cinematic art style of modern comic books. I just don't like spending $4 on a comic book and reading it in less than five minutes, and almost nothing happening on the page. So, so that's sort of my, my big concern. I always look back at, you know, the old comic books, where you picked one up, it had 60 pages, and there were like four or five different stories in it, uh, complete stories, uh, without this cliffhanger mentality. And again, I'm not opposed to even cliffhangers. Just if you're going to have decompressed storytelling going on, make sure that you're still filling every single issue with lots and lots of content. Uh, Otherwise, it just feels stretched, thin, and ultimately not worth the price of admission. What's your uh, thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I'm a a big novel reader. Like, I give me those 800-page novels from, you know, like Alexander Dumas and other authors of the the Romanticist period. I'm, I'm a sucker for those. And, like, my favorite writers are Chris Claremont, Stan Lee, Jonathan Hickman. Three of the people that that a lot of comic readers complain about because of their excessive use of prose and setting the scene. But sign me up for that any day. It's almost like Shakespearean uh, in the case of Stan Lee and Chris Claremont. It's like Shakespearean. So you're basically getting a novel, you know, for the price of a regular comic, like you were saying, bang for your buck. The level of prose and dialogue, like they leave. um, It also reminds me of like Tolkien. Like I had a friend who complained to me one time. Uh, they were starting The Hobbit, and we were in middle middle school or high school at the time, because he took a page, like that opening page of The Hobbit, where he's describing the hill, and it takes an entire page. I'm like, I don't understand what you're complaining about. Sign me up, sis. So I, I, I love that amount. Like you said, bang for your buck. I, I just keep coming back to that, because 
um, you think of things like the Dark Phoenix Saga that Claremont is probably most famous for, that wasn't like a three-issue arc. That was an ongoing thing for like 20 or 30 issues, and it took, like, in, in real time, that was like over a year of a storyline where you had, you know, her Jean's initial death, you know, way back when they came back on that mission from space, and then, you know, the Dark Phoenix thing, that took a long time to develop and breathe. Um, and then even, you know, years after that, you know, you had her, you know, pop up an X Factor and, you know, still struggle with being imbued with that power um, for for decades. She always, even by other creators and other writers, you know, that was an ever present thing with Jean. You know, that's why she's one of my favorite characters. All right, Chris, so what is your next nerdy thing you don't enjoy? Okay, the next thing I put on my list I don't necessarily, like, hate it. I've just never really been exposed to it, and I'm not really interested in starting it up. And that would be tabletop gaming. I see a lot of, you know, LCSs featuring, you know, even in their logo. I I would just assume that that die that is in the logo, I assume that's something to do with tabletop gaming. I have no idea. I'm such an introvert, like I said before, like, um, I'd like to stay in the home. I don't have an extensive, you know, friend group. Um, most of the people I interact with are like online or, you know, in like like-minded things or live in different parts of the country. Um, it seems expensive to me. Um, seems like it's like kind of almost like we talked about, um, with LCSs in previous episodes. Um, it seems like a secret society that I was not invited to. Um, it seems really complicated. Now, I am open. If somebody was like, hey, we're doing a and d and we want you to join, like, I'd totally be down for that. I just don't know a lot of people that are. Like, um, so, like I said, I'm not really, like, angsty about it. I'm not angry about it. It's just something that I don't describe to that I haven't been really vibing with. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's funny you say that. I always thought that tabletop gaming looked incredibly fun. Anytime you see in, in pop culture, uh, you know, sort of them reenacting that sort of thing, like, for example, in Stranger Things in Season 1 when they do the whole D&D session in the basement, it, look, it looks incredibly fun. I just... I, you know, I grew up in an era where finding fellow nerds was rather difficult. Uh, there weren't a lot in my community, and uh, there was certainly not uh, a lot of internet usage yet, so it's not like I could connect with people that way. So us nerds back in the day existed sort of in, in, in little islands, and getting a group big enough together to really run a tabletop game was fairly rare in my experience. So I never really had the opportunity to get into this. It It always seems really complex and daunting like it's a huge time investment it's not a not a something that you can pick up and and enjoy and then put down and come back to later there's also this subclass of tabletop gaming the subgroup that involves uh models that that you paint yourself and all that and i don't have an artistic bone in my body (laughs) uh i enjoy art i mean i'll read comic books all day long but as far as doing it myself that that is not something i'm particularly good at so ultimately, it's not something I necessarily dislike. It's just something that I never had the opportunity to actually be exposed to. Yeah, I totally agree. That you know, basically my experience as well. Now, to this goes out to our younger audience. Uh, you know, times have changed. We've become more progressive. When we were kids, when Dave and I were kids, it wasn't cool to be a nerd. Now, you know, it's more acceptable and it's more mainstream. But when we were kids, it wasn't like, hey, I'm a nerd. Hey, I'm wearing this Captain America t-shirt. Wasn't wasn't quite like that. Um, but yeah, I kind of pre- I, I referenced this la- in our last episode as to why I prefer digital comics. You know, I don't have the space and little pieces. You know, my household, my family, we really struggled to keep one deck of Uno cards. You know, together. So me keeping together a bunch of little figurines that I hand painted, um, or a bunch of of pieces. If I can't handle a deck of Uno cards, I highly doubt I'm going to be able to keep up with this stuff. But yeah, so that's that's number two on my list. Dave, what's your third and final one for this week? Ah, I, th- I think actually with this one, uh, many nerds are going to agree with me, uh, especially connoisseurs of uh, older cinema. I- I'm incredibly tired of the consistent overuse of CGI. Uh, computer-generated effects in movies 
I totally understand that there are situations where you need them, uh, where you're trying to show something so odd and outlandish that it's not something that you can practically pull off. But there's been so many instances where perfectly good practical special effects could have been used instead. There is definitely this, what people like to call this uncanny valley sense when you look at something that's computer generated and if it's not done with extreme skill, it'll automatically take you out of the story. I know they were doing a a sequel to uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, or really a prequel, I believe, uh, a few years ago, and they shot the movie uh, with practical in-camera special effects. Uh, and some of the designs and stuff leaked, and they looked incredible. And then in post-production, they decided, nope, we are going to go ahead and get rid of all the practical effects, and we're going to CGI over it. And it was to the huge detriment of the movie. Uh, you know, completely ignoring the, the quality of, of the rest of the movie, the writing and acting and the like, it automatically took a dip because those high-quality practical effects were erased in favor of not very good computer-generated effects. So when I have an opportunity to watch, you know, movies from the 80s, uh, we like to talk about how things from back then look cheesy, but you believe that they're there. And that believability is oftentimes missing in modern movies. Look at a TV show like The Walking Dead, where they basically decided that all of their instances of blood splatter when a zombie is killed would be uh, would be computer generated. So you have this this fake blood spraying all over the place, and it's so noticeable that it immediately takes you out of the storytelling. It's it's really regrettable. Uh, there was such an art to practical effects. And so many of those movies that use practical effects primarily still hold up and still look amazing. Whereas CGI ages terribly. Um, there was a spin-off of the Mummy movies uh, with Brendan Fraser that featured The Rock, the Scorpion King. And at the, e- and at the end of the movie, uh, The Rock's face is CG'd under this huge scorpion monster and it is... One of the most atrocious-looking special effects by any standard that I have ever seen. It makes a great yeah. meme, though. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but now you flip that you flip that around and you look at a movie that is actually older, uh, the first Terminator, where a lot of the effects had to be uh, obviously practical effects. Even that uh, that dummy face that they made of Arnold Schwarzenegger while he's trying to you know repair part of his face looks better than the CG in The Scorpion King. And so I'm just tired of computer-generated effects being used because they're cheaper, um, but they don't add anything to the movie. I wish the movie industry would use them for things that they absolutely cannot pull off practically. But bring back some of the old, you know, creature workshops and special effects houses and and, and bring some of that art back uh, of practical effects. Chris, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I absolutely agree. Um, I mean, it's like you said, you hit the nail on the head. It, it, it takes me out of the movie. Like, um, I, I did go back and I watched Aquaman, um, thanks to your recommendation from episode one, and I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. But in that movie, you have, you know, the the like both sides of the spectrum when it comes to CGI. You have something that is as beautiful and as gorgeous as what they did with Atlantis. Um, and that entire world that they built. But then, and I referenced this, you know, in the first episode, you have that lighthouse that looks fake. Like something like a lighthouse. Okay, you did the hard part wonderfully. The easy bit, you made it look bad. Just, Just go to a lighthouse and film there on location, and it'll look good. It'll look good. But now... That did not ruin the whole movie for me. It was just a momentary eyebrow raise. So I love that movie. I love you know almost everything about it. The lighthouse scene didn't do it for me. Um, the practical effects that they use in in properties like Star Wars are are you know what what makes me hopeful for the franchise going forward. When when you know when when we were getting ready for the Force Awakens and we were still getting over the prequels when i saw that they were using puppets and practical effects i was like okay this this is gonna work it's all gonna be okay yes exactly 
and then Rise of Skywalker happened. But we'll get to that in a future episode. We'll get to that. I do believe so, yeah. Uh, we'll get to that in a future episode. Um, but you look at something as so widely, and you know, if I'm overstepping my boundaries here, please, you know, correct me. But if you look at a show as widely adored as The Mandalorian was, what is the calling card? What does everybody love about that show? That's Baby Yoda. It's Baby Yoda, the child. We call him Baby Yoda. Um, But that's puppet work. And that's, you know, that was not CGI'd. And you can tell the quality of the product by using, you know, realistic effects. So I totally agree with you 100%. All right, Chris, what is uh, your last nerdy thing that you do not enjoy? Okay, I hope this doesn't get me burned at the stake. But the last thing that I am not a fan of is source material puritanism. I am not a fan of it has to be line by line, word by word, panel by panel, what the source material says. My life motto when it comes to comic book film adaptations, graphic novel adaptations, or any kind of series or film adaptations from from nerdy material is just make it a good story tell a good story that's all i need from you okay i don't need you to go line for line shot for shot exactly like that you know in 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 a nerd community where we love alternate universes we love spider-verse we love the ultimate universe we love things like flashpoint that give us one of the coolest iterations of batman just pretend if, if it doesn't go exactly as the source material says, just pretend it's an alternate universe. Just tell yourself that. Maybe that'll make you feel better. Um, the, the reasons that I, you know, I, I did a rewatch of the MCU in anticipation for Endgame. And I really had to apologize for, for a lot of my dislike of Age of Ultron. Because I kind of fell victim to other voices telling me, it doesn't do this. It's not like the comic at all. Um, There are issues with that film. It's not the best of the MCU. Um, It it tries to develop too many plot lines in too short of amount of time. All of a sudden, Bruce and Natasha are in love, and I'm supposed to buy that. Um, But there are elements of that film that are very very good and it doesn't matter i i don't care like if they made them you know romantically involved i don't have a problem with that you know that's nowhere in the source material i just don't buy it because of what you showed me in the story so as long as you tell me a good story i don't care that within the mcu tony stark created ultron and bruce banner created ultron and it wasn't hank pym that doesn't bother me okay just tell a good story what do you think yeah, I, I agree with this, and I will also freely admit that occasionally uh, I am guilty of this. So I'll start with the part that I agree with. Uh, it seems silly in the world of comic books in particular, because characters are constantly being reinvented and reinterpreted in comic books. Every time there's a creative team shift on a monthly comic book, there's a new interpretation. Uh, so uh, it's it's constantly evolving and changing. There's also what ifs and elseworld stories, alternate universes, like you mentioned, all that jazz. So we as a as a community of nerds should already be used to the idea that comic books are constantly showing different interpretations of these various characters and stories. So I agree with you. I just want a good story. If they have to tweak a character get to get there, then I don't care. Um, also, uh, you know, alternative interpretations oftentimes fuel change and innovation in comic books themselves. Superman flying and kryptonite came, after all, from the radio serials. They're not originally from the comic books. Harley Quinn came from Batman the Animated Series before she was imported back into the comic books. So uh, these alternate interpretations uh, oftentimes lead to good additions uh, to uh, the comic book world. Now, I will say that I, I don't like when a interpretation diverts from the source material and thereby breaks the story. And a good example of that, regrettably, is to me the Dark Tower film. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Stephen King's Dark Tower uh, series. I think it's one of the finest things ever written. Uh, I adore it. I've read the whole seven-book cycle probably uh, four times at this point. And the movie did not represent the book. 
in any way, shape, or form. It didn't capture the the, the majesty, uh, the the characters, uh, the relationships. It fell flat. Now, if you can take uh, something from Stephen King and you can reinterpret it in a different way, which I think uh, the It movies, It Part 1 and 2, did. It is not the same as the book in a whole bunch of different ways, and they were mostly successful. Then that's great. But you better succeed if you're going to change those things, because otherwise you're going to end up with a Dark Tower situation, a movie that is now in the in the $5 bin at Walmart and, and is laying there probably for all eternity because it was such a disappointment. Not, not because of the acting, which was fantastic, but ultimately because it failed to capture what the books offered. So if you can capture uh, the essence of a comic book, then you don't have to be pure to the source material. Just capture the essence of what makes them appealing. Is, is I think what I'm trying to say. And I totally echo those as well. Like um, my example with that, I don't have any experience with Dark Tower. I've had it heavily recommended to me and I'll have to check it out for sure. But for my experience as, as a huge webhead, as a huge Spider-Man fan, for me, those are the amazing Spider-Man film series with Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. While those um, films have some really high points when it comes to, you know, the web swinging, those those scenes opening into spite uh, the amazing Spider-Man two when he is swinging through the we- you know of New York that's everything that I ever imagined as a child, and if we're being honest, still as a thirty one year old man when I put my my middle and ring finger down to my wrist to pretend that I have a web shooter, that's exactly what it feels like. That first person view was genius. Yes, that they hadn't tried that before in the Raimi films blows my mind. The first person view of swinging through New York was spectacular. Now, now there's where CG actually works. So, like, I totally like love that. Um, but where it lost me was their work or lack thereof with the villains. Like, it completely, like, I'm not upset that it didn't go with the source material. This kind of goes back into my issues with Age of Ultron. I'm supposed to believe that Harry Osborn is his best friend because they met in the middle of the film, they hung out twice in the park, and threw rocks on the lake, and now all of a sudden that turn is supposed to mean something to me. As a person who reads 800-page novels, I don't buy that. Tell me the story. Show it to me. One of the strengths of that film franchise was the relationship between Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker and Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy because of, number one, the acting. The acting, especially Emma Stone, is just out of this world. Um, you know, and for me, I feel, and a lot of Spider-Man fans do, she's a little bit MJ more than she is actually Gwen Stacy, personality-wise. But, you know, the acting, number one, but like their, their relationship, the back and the forth and the chemistry that those two actors have on screen is one of the high points of that. But the, the the main problems that I have with those two films are, you know, because they not only, as you said with The Dark Tower, they didn't stick to the source material, they told a really crappy story. Yeah, yeah, and ultimately that's the problem. If you're not going to be true to the source material, you better make sure that the alternative that you are presenting is, is high quality and captivating. And, and when it's not... Uh, I think a lot of nerds default to, well, it wasn't like the source material, when really it was just a bad story. Exactly. And now, and now in Counterpoint, what I think one of the strengths of with a, a film like Spider-Man Homecoming is you have one of the best villain portrayals in the entire MCU and, and comic book movies. You know, you had to go get Batman to do it, but Michael Keaton is the vulture. That's not the source material. Adrian Toomes is a withered old man. In fact... I think it's an improvement over the source material. All love to Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, especially the modernization of that. It just seems more realistic than some decrepit old man in a super suit, you know, flying around. But I think, you know, they didn't stick to the source material, but it worked because it was a good, believable story when he's really into this girl. And it turns out, oh, my God, her dad is the supervillain that I've been chasing. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie. Sorry, it's it's been years. But, um... But yeah, like, so there, you can diverge from the source material. Just tell a good story. Yes, absolutely. Alrighty, folks, uh, that's it for our deep dive this week. After a quick break, 
we are going to be back with our weekly nerd commendations. And we're back. Chris, nerd commendation time. What would you like to recommend to our listeners this week? All right. So with everything going on in the world, um, I wanted to focus on um, something from a black creative in solidarity um, with the Black Lives Matter movement. So I really went and I also remember what you said last week and you wanted a real deep dive. Um, something that is not on folks' radar. And I went with Black Panther and the Crew, uh, 2017 series um, by Ta-Nehisi Coates and Yona Harvey uh, as the writers, uh, Butch Geis, Max Chate, and Stephen Thompson on the art with recap pages that are just so gorgeous to look at by Brian Stelfreeze. Um, they are the same from the Black Panther series that, the, that was running concurrently at the time. Um, it was it was announced you know in 2017 it was released it was canceled after two issues so they they gave them an, an additional four just, just simply but low sales numbers and I remember reading this as it came out and I was so disheartened I think we even talked about it at the time that it was canceled and then they and I went back and revisited it um, this past week and it's it's just it's so prescient. Um, it tackles issues that we're dealing with in real life with, with interesting symbolism. You have um, these these android police officers as the Americops um, that are so robotic in their actions and their excessive use of force um, that are just undeniable symbols um, uh, and, 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 and a lot of issues that black Americans um, and minorities throughout the country are dealing with, like gentrification of neighborhoods they're being pushed out of Harlem for high rises. Um, and then, you know, you know, the, the, the corporations that are, that are, uh, behind all of this. And it's just, um, just a really prescient real world, um, symbolism that's present here. And, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, I can't say enough about, you know, his work. Um, it's so prescient and it's so, um, thought inducing um he's one of my favorite writers and, and this just holds up right to that standard yeah so when i saw you put this on the list i actually went ahead and i picked up the first issue um and i've got the trade on order i'm actually planning on reading all six issues as soon as the trade comes in but but just sitting down and reading the first issue i was incredibly impressed and a little disappointed really that it never seemed to catch on with audiences uh, the characterization of Misty Knight in the first issue is is fantastic, and she's just such an underappreciated and underused character. And the the opening flashback to the 1930s, and you know the crew taking down this this mob boss in order to protect Harlem was was fantastic. And that's really a time period in superhero comics, considering that they started back then that we really don't see much of anymore. So that was that flashback was really intriguing. And I, I really wanted to know more about the characters. Um, and again, Misty Knight is just such a great character that is so often underused. So seeing her kind of starring in that first issue uh, was fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to reading the rest. Um, I, I absolutely... Uh, I'm thrilled that you recommended this because that was not on my radar at all. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. I found the trade. I actually found like a used copy of the trade on Amazon from like a, a library for like $6. Um, it's not in like any pristine condition, not like the trade that I recommended last week. Um, it's a little bit bent up and a little bit used, um, but you know, um, all six issues are available on Marvel Unlimited as well. If you prefer a digital um, and what I appreciate is just, like you said, the character work. Um, um, you, each, each of the first five issues um, are given uh, from the perspective, the dialogue, the inner monologue from a different character. And it starts off, as you said, with Misty Knight. And then it goes to um, Aurora and other characters, um, who's my personal you know, favorite mutant, so I'm biased. But um, so, yeah, just, just fantastic work. And I, I can't recommend that enough now dave your nerd commendation popped up this week um on my phone i got a notification on it because it is now being offered for free with xbox live gold what are you recommending for us this week 
So I'm, I'm this week recommending uh, a series of video games called Shantae. Uh, they're platform video games that are developed by WayForward Technologies. Uh, the heroine of the series is a half-genie called Shantae, who uh, is protecting her hometown uh, of Seguin Land. Uh, she is sort of the guardian uh, of this area and has to face off against uh, her nemesis, the pirate Risky Boots. The very first game was actually released late in the life of the Game Boy Color and ha made very little impact, but it's such a quality game and, and fairly rare because it didn't sell very well at the time that it now goes for a premium online and is very difficult to get a hold of. And I've not had the pleasure of, of playing the original Game Boy Color version yet. There are uh, five games in the series now. And the one that is currently offered up by Xbox Live Gold is the one that got me into the series, which is Shantae and the Pirate's Curse. Uh, it's sort of the last one in the series that uses primarily pixel art. Uh, as of the fourth game in the series, uh, they use more of a, a hand-drawn sort of 2.5D style. Uh, but the original pixel art is very appealing to me. It feels very old school. There are strong anime influences in the design, but... Gameplay influences include Castlevania and The Legend of Zelda. Shantae visits different regions or islands, explores a dungeon, receives a new item or skill there that she uses to defeat the dungeon boss, and then that new skill or item also unlocks new areas to explore. The game is bright, colorful, it's humorous, the controls are tight, uh, the Metroidvania feel of it all, of exploring and finding new items that unlock more of the map, is perfectly on point. It can be challenging in places, but it never feels cheap. Uh, so ultimately, I really, really, really enjoyed playing Shantae and the Pirate's Curse, and I plan uh, to play the next game in the series, which is also available on uh, Xbox, which is Half Genie Hero, uh, hopefully in the near future. Uh, it, it seems like such a gem of a series that I don't often hear people talk about. Lastly, uh, most of the games feature a soundtrack by Jake Kaufman, and those tunes absolutely blow me away. They go so perfectly with the game. that They have a fun, bouncy vibe. Uh, absolutely uh, earworms. You just cannot stop listening to this music. Almost worth buying the soundtrack just to keep listening to. So highly recommend that if you get a chance to play a Shantae game, uh, it's a lot of fun. All right, so Dave, I'm playing, as I said, Red Dead Online, and that's a real-time consumer. Um, is this the type of game that's going to take a lot of time, or is it something like a quick campaign that you can fly through? Like I did um, the new Star Wars game, Fallen Order. I did that in two days, and I was done. Like, which Does it fall somewhere in between there, or what are we looking at as time investment-wise? I would say it's actually shorter than Fallen Order. My guess would be you're probably going to be able to go through the whole thing as a completionist within 10 to 15 hours tops. It is not a not an extremely long game, and if you have an Xbox Live Gold subscription, then you don't even have to worry about price point or anything as far as bang for your buck goes. Um, but yeah, I'd say maybe 10 to 15 hours at most. It took me uh, maybe three days to beat it, but I, I really played in sort of short sessions. So yeah... Uh, I don't think it's a huge time investment. Now, Dave, you referenced the Game Boy Color. Now, your Twitter followers also had something else to uh, enjoy as far as your Game Boy. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so I have disassembled my Game Boy in an effort to uh, restore it. This is the original uh, Game Boy, the DMG-01. Uh, it's my first gaming console that I ever owned. Uh, I got it as a gift from my parents in 1989. And so since I still have the original Game Boy, I'm trying to restore it. Um, I'm about halfway through the process, and I think once I'm completely through with it, this might be something uh, that I talk a little about, a little bit about in a, a nerd commendation segment, uh, just to kind of, you know, if it's worth recommending to go through the process of restoring an old console like this or not. Ladies and gents, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd Byword. We'll be releasing uh, new episodes each and every Monday morning into your podcast feeds. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the TuneIn app, or on our website, nerdbyword.com. Uh, you can also find us individually, each on Twitter, at ThatNerdDave and 
that nerd Chris. You can also find me on my personal Instagram at that nerd Chris. I haven't talked Dave into Instagram yet. Time will tell. <laughs> yeah, and uh, just a quick call to action, folks. If you listen to the podcast and you actually enjoy it, please uh, recommend us on to maybe some friends of yours that are also nerds and uh, drop us a, a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That'll help us a lot in getting the word out that uh, this podcast exists. Absolutely. And we appreciate like all of the support that you've given. Those of you who have dropped a review on Apple Podcasts, we appreciate your kind words. Uh, for those of you who've been joining me on Instagram Live the past two nights and answering our question of the day polls on Instagram and Twitter, we totally appreciate it. Um, really, really exciting to see like how welcoming the nerd community is. But then again, we shouldn't be surprised because like minds travel together. Um, we have some really exciting things coming down the pipe, some interviews that we're lining up that we can't wait to share with you guys. So stay tuned and stay well. And we'll see you next week. The Nerd By Word is produced by two nerds, Chris and Dave, to encompass all aspects of the nerd multiverse. The theme music was written by Al Jimenez. Our show art features original art by Ashby Design, as well as public domain comic panels. Find us online at nerdbyword.com, on Twitter at nerdbyword, and send questions and comments to nerdbyword at gmail.com.